0: Welcome, everyone, to an NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren and the NCAA's Chief Operating Officer, Don Remy. Uh, to both of you, and I will start uh, with you, Kevin, because you spent so many years in Minnesota as the CEO of Minnesota Vikings. Um, I just want to get your first raw emotion uh, to what you felt when you first saw uh, and we can call it this, the murder of George Floyd. I mean, I felt uh,
1: I was heartbroken. And um, because, uh, you know, it was one of those situations. It's one thing to really, you know, read about a, uh, uh, heartbreaking issues. It's even one thing to even see a heartbreaking movie. But when you see something that's real life, you know, that, that was uh, unvarnished, Um, And to really see it firsthand of of what someone who who loses their life, and I've often said it before, until you see a a beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset, a baby born or a person take their last breath, um, you know, you really haven't understood the essence of life. And to see George Floyd, a proud black man, take his last breath, uh, face down uh, on the side of a street. In, in, in Minnesota, and Minneapolis, and I know that area and understand, uh, you know, what that really means. I, I was, I was, I was heartbroken uh, for for so many reasons, and um, and 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 now I, I'm still heartbroken, but I've moved to a point of, of really being encouraged and looking at this. And when I say opportunity, not at the expense of his life or death, but as an opportunity for us in society to recognize that we have some systemic issues that we have to deal with. We've had them, but we've ignored them, but now we have to deal with them. And so when you see the impact that he's had, uh, I can argue that his impact will be, you know, in the same level of Dr. King or when uh, President Obama became president, because now the country has to take notice as far as what happened, and we need to make sure that we address these issues.
0: And I want to get to that here momentarily. I want to first get the first raw emotion done. Well, you know, Kevin just said
2: heartbroken. I think that's right. You know, I was, I was sad, uh, but I was angry. I, I was confused, but I had clarity. This was one of these circumstances which none of us ever want to witness, and we all had to witness. But there was a realization that set in, not just with me, but I think of, with a lot of people in in America, that this wasn't the first time that this had occurred. And it was just troubling to see it occurring again. We've had protests in the past. We've had movements in the past. We've had many people who have engaged in the discourse around the challenges to black people in America. But this time seemed a little different. And when I first saw the video, it struck me and struck a chord in me that was very, very deep ending. And to Kevin's point, it was something that you never wanna witness and that you'll never forget. It's one of those moments that you look at and if someone asks you, where were you when you saw that video, you'd remember and it would be a sad memory. But what came after that has been impressive to me and that's something that I know we'll talk about. And, and in fact, Andy, if you if you'll do me this solid and before we get into our discussion. And I want to say thank you, by the way, for for you dedicating the show to this really important topic. But if, if you'll do me this solid, if we could just the three of us take 15 seconds, 15 seconds, moment of silence honor the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, of Michael Brown and Eric Garner and the countless others who've died at the hands of those charged to protect and to serve them and their communities. I, I'd really appreciate it. So it, Kevin, Andy, if we can all just stop and pause for, for, for about 15 seconds. 15 seconds is a long time. It is. It's a long time. It's about the amount of time it takes to recite the Lord's Prayer, which is what I was doing in in my head. But just think how long eight minutes and 46 seconds is. That's that's a life. It's a lifetime.
0: Um, It's a lifetime. So, Donald, you know, you mentioned names that we need to hear again and again. And this has happened multiple times already in 2020, okay? And yet, why do you think this murder, this death, which I know was seen globally, and we're thankful for that, but why do you think this one resonated more than others to cause you know, this visceral reaction, not just across the country, not in every community, But literally across the globe, as we've seen protests and rallies in Europe and really all Africa, everywhere, Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, the Middle East, everywhere. Why?
2: You know, I, I don't know that I have the answer and I don't know that anybody who says they have the answer can really pinpoint it except to say the time is now. The time is now for humanity to change. The time is now for people across the globe, to your point, Andy, to get engaged in the conversation and say no more. This type of thing we've seen before, but no more. We have got to realize the impact that this systemic racism is having all across our country. And I think that combined with the realities of the environment that we are living in on the globe right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, and candidly, Andy, the realization that even in dealing with COVID-19, we've seen a disproportionate impact on our communities, on the black and brown communities of America and across the globe even. I think all of that together had people realizing the time is now, and you see our young people who are engaged in this in a manner that should be celebrated, you know, across all racial lines, male and female, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. People are tired, they're just tired. Kevin?
1: Well, I mean, Don, Don again, you know, nailed it, is um, um, you know, this. We've heard about it. I mean, uh, my parents used to talk to me about, you know, Emmett Till, and you know, I read articles and, and books on it. But but I think what's happened now is that even people who have been the oppressors in the past are tired because it's it's impacted everyone now. You know, typically when issues happen in life, because we're we're the we're the best country at bifurcating issues. You know, we we can we can segregate issues. Without even segregation, we we can do that and say, well, that's no, that, that tsunami is that issue over there. This is the first time that really a combination of when you think what happened. I mean, basically we started off; it was already existing, but but this is what brought it to the to the to the topsoil. Is you know now we had the COVID-19 uh, that created, not created, it basically exposed how frail financially people are and how frail our country is. Then you add on top of the, you know, the the social justice issues and the murder of George Floyd and among others, Armand Aubrey and and, uh, Breonna Taylor and all the way back to Emmett Till, is that, you know, it was a convergence of all of these, you know, efforts that we couldn't ignore. And because you think about it, up to that point, we were able to say if it had been, and I don't say just, but just COVID-19, we had already started to kind of rationalize over 100,000 people dying, and this disproportionate amount of those people being people of color. But we had already rationalized that. Um, we were over that. Then the economic fallout. We had even rationalized that. We gave some, you know, some money uh, in a way to try to keep people quiet. But, but I think it, you know, basically society, and I'm going to put it from a higher being, from a spiritual standpoint. This is the time that God said, you know what? If I don't bring all this together and have this, this basically create this explosion, we would have figured it out, how to how to spin it from a PR standpoint, and we would have gone on our way, you know, on down the road. Now, this made the world stop, and what's been most powerful is that when you've got people of color, you got white people, you got older people, younger people, people with financial resources, people who are struggling financially, all coming together on this issue. And so... Because we got our lesson in civil rights, and we ignored it. Uh, and we did a few things for a little bit, and then we kind of went right back to where it was. This lesson right now, there's no ignoring this. And and, and I'm going to tell you, this is going to shine the light on Wall Street. It's going to shine the light on, on academia. Uh, it's going to shine the light on professional athletics. It's going to shine the light on college athletics. It's going to shine the light... On, on race relations, on the p- political environment, which I think is, uh, is, is like I said, unfortunately these deaths have happened and occurred, but at the grand scheme of things, when we look back 100 years from now, that this will be uh, the most, I think, most critical inflection, inflection point in all of society ever from a race relations standpoint.
0: I mean, look, we're, we're going back 400 years uh, for this systemic racism that has been in this country. And if you can bear with me here, because I know everyone has a story. Um, and I was moved and chilled at the same time. And I'll start with you, Kevin, when you were talking uh, with, um, uh, you, you were on Big Ten network and you were discussing your sons, uh, with how Griffith and, uh, you know, as a parent, we all worries with teenagers. But it's different. It's different of how you sleep at night, Um, you know, especially in this country when you have an African-American male teenage son. Uh, If you can expand a little bit on that, I'm just trying to get other people to understand what that's like when your child is out and about just living life and that concern you have before you close your eyes at night.
1: I mean, and I've told my son and my daughter that it probably won't be until they get to be my age that they recognize this stress and anxiety. And I can say this, Andy, this is the honest to God truth. Like, I have no anxiety. Like, I don't worry. I'm not a warrior. I never have been. I I pray. I do the best that I can, and I just leave it alone. Regarding my kids, I'm in a perpetual state of anxiety. And and when they travel, uh, when they go out— and even, and I'm not talking about going out to, you know, crazy concerts or something. I'm just talking about, you know, going from to the grocery store, getting home. My daughter went to college in Los Angeles. My son goes to school in Starkville, Mississippi. And and literally, and, and I do it so much, if you call them now and ask them, he'll tell you exactly what I tell them all the time. You know, be smart and be safe. <laughs> and, uh, and this is not about... Uh, you know, this is not about one of those situations where, you know, well, what had happened? I was over here. I'm, I'm just I mean, I just had it literally within the hour before this phone call. Uh, I'm in Chicago. My wife is in Minnesota. She sent me a text uh, of someone had brought my son home because he had to drop his car off and brought him home. And the car that they brought him home in didn't have a license plate on it. And, you know, you think my, you think I'm aggressive. My wife, uh, you know, makes me look like a, a kindergarten teacher. And she literally went out there because this is another young black kid and said, do you do you know if you're driving around here without a license plate on? I mean, you are literally you're like Rudolph the Red Nosed reindeer going down the highway. You're asking for it. And she told my son, whatever you have to do, call us, walk, do whatever. Do not get in that automobile. Because those are the kind of things that we have to deal with. So the stress as a black parent with black kids uh, who are just out living their normal life, it's not about sleeping. I mean, it's about dozing and napping. And when we're home, we've been home, we were home about 70 days together, literally until that goes on and I know they're walking in the house, walking in the house safe, is that then that's when we can go to, you know, go to sleep. But every time that they travel, every time he goes back to Starkville, every time my daughter went back to L.A., but every time they even move around, whether it's Chicago, New York, you know, Minnesota. I mean, uh, and I say that all the time. People, they, they, I, I got one of the most powerful notes recently from a friend of mine, because we live four tenths of a mile from basically like an eating club that we go to all the time. And I Uber there every time we go. And he would joke to say four tenths of a mile. And I would tell him, basically, my life is worth $12 because I'm going to do it because I am not going to put myself in a position to take any chance or risk of driving in between there. You know, if if for whatever the reason, I don't care if you've had, uh, you know, just an ounce of alcohol, but put myself in a position where you have to explain something. So again, this is what's now with, with what's happened in society. I think people understand, and I can tell you stories, I know Don could tell you stories, really what it means to be black in America. Really, what it means. They heard about it, but
0: now I think people are starting to understand. And Donald, you know, on a college campus, um, like it or not, if there's a frat party of a mostly white fraternity and they get out of hand, they are going to be treated differently than if there's a party more than likely at either a black fraternity or a house where there are largely, you know, black students or student athletes. That's systemic racism. It's just built into the culture. How do we wrap our arms? And I don't expect you to have the answer here, but how <laughs> do we wrap our arms around trying to change that culture?
2: You know, education, communication, collaboration, engagement, honest dialogue about what people are feeling, what people are experiencing and what's going on around them. I mean, we've got to start with a national conversation and that national conversation has got to occur in every nook and cranny of the country, including on the college campuses where you have the frat parties or the gatherings of the social clubs. And we need to bring those frats together. We need to bring those social clubs together. We need to have people sit down and talk about these issues, understand each other, understand that his plight or her plight might be different than yours, that their circumstance is different than yours, that their backgrounds are different than yours and have that appreciation the next time you engage with them. Look, as Kevin said, we all have stories. I've got stories that I can take you back to my my college days and in in parties and circumstances like this where, um, you know, everybody knows where I went to college so I won't talk a little bit about the, the college experiences per se, but I had those experiences both on campus and off campus that were not pleasant, that were not pleasant at all. Experiences that are seared in your memory for a lifetime. I can remember, Andy, one time where I participated in a march in honor of Martin Luther King Day. And there was another group that participated in a march in honor of Robert E. Lee's birthday. We had a permit. They didn't. We met in the middle of the 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 uh, the, the the ground, the, the route for the march, and everybody stopped. When the police came up, who do you think they questioned? Not the people with the permit, not the people that were there to march appropriately. I can tell you stories, Andy, about when we were at we were at events or parties where we had. Police dogs leashed on us, Unleashed on us, I should say. And we stood helpless in the circumstances and and all it was was a college party. So I understand these situations and I know that they continue to occur today. Like Kevin, I've got I've got two kids. I got two sons. One lives in Washington, DC, one lives in Los Angeles, California. And as you both know, There's a lot of activity that's been going on in both of those locations over the course of the last several days. And like Kevin, I wait for that text Mm -hmm. every day. I pick up the phone and call and say, how you doing? When the curfew starts, I make sure that the kids are at home in their apartments, that they're not out in the street. During the day, they participate in civil, peaceful protest. But in the evening, I tell them, come home. And these are people that, you know, my sons have been, they've lived in a variety of different places and they've experienced different circumstances. They've actually been with me when I've experienced what we call in the community driving while black Stop. And they've had that happen to them, too. And I've had to have the talk with them. Andy, you don't have to have the talk. We have to have the talk and have to have them understand that when this circumstance arises, and unfortunately, it will arise, it does arise. This is how you have to behave to assure that you get out of it safe, that you get out of it without being arrested, that you get out of it alive. And that's important. So as, as my boys participate in the national dialogue around this issue, like Kevin, I tell them every day, be smart and be safe.
0: Yeah, we could do a whole other show on the lack of education on the Confederate flag that you referenced earlier. Anytime it's with the American flag, I don't know why people don't understand that's actually contradictory. Uh, the Confederate flag was a treasonous flag. It was trying to separate from the United States, but that's a whole other story. Um, let's go now to action. For example, um, on Thursday, the NBC as an example, uh, put out some action steps, uh, including meeting with law enforcement, uh, you know, at the sort of the the ground level. I want to start with the Big Ten and then at the NCAA level, and obviously uh, NCAA President Mark Emmer put out a statement on this in terms of taking action. Let's start with what the Big Ten is doing in sort of leading the way, I think nationally, in terms of trying to now take action. Kevin, we'll start with you in terms of what you are coordinating in the Big Ten?
1: Yeah, Andy, and, and uh so a valid point, but it was important for me, not judging anyone else, that we had to take action. I had to take action as a person first, uh, but then act action as a conference. And that's one of the reasons why we formed the Anti-Hate, Anti-Race Coalition. Uh, we're organizing our group right now. Um, we'll be meeting here uh, in the near future. But my, my whole call to action for that group will be, Tangible progress. I mean, we 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 can get together and talk and vent, and that's wonderful. That's part of the process and the journey. But I want some tangible actions, and that's why we're going to really lean in uh, the fact about you know where are we right now? We're working on the numbers right now. What percent of percentage of our student athletes in the Big Ten are registered to vote? We're working on it. I was on a call earlier today because I want to get the baseline, and then we need to be all registered to vote. We then need to vote. We need to reward the people that do vote. We need to have those discussions with the with police uh, officers and law enforcement. Um, we need to talk, like Don said earlier, from an education standpoint, you know, educate people. We need to work on policy. We need to work on different laws. But I want some tangible steps being done. And that's why I was very focused and empowered to pin that letter. And I can tell you a lot of people who I talked with said don't do it. And because they were concerned about uh The backlash, but one of the things I promised, and ironically, is one year ago today, about this time, I was introduced as commissioner of the Big Ten Conference, uh, June 4th of of 2019. And I made a vow at that point in time that I was going to do everything within my power uh, to make sure that we kind of help change the world well beyond what goes on on the field. And I think the thing, and that's why it's great having Don as a partner, uh, there's so many opportunities that we have in our positions uh, to be able to push forward and make this world a better place. And even in the whole sports area, we got to start talking about, you know, some of these issues that we have talked about in society or quietly, uh, but the time is now. So I appreciate Don. I appreciate what's going on at the NCAA, but we will take tangible steps here at the Big Ten uh, and me personally to make sure we address these issues.
0: So the 14 institutions – uh, are diverse in terms of their geographic region. Uh, certainly, you know, it's hard to compare uh, the diversity makeup at Nebraska, you know, versus a uh, university, potentially, you know, Maryland or Rutgers of where they're located. How are you gonna try to sort of bring, you know, these different universities, different parts of the country together, get them on the same page to ensure that they are doing the right things in terms of a call to action, to make sure there is legitimate change, not just words, going forward.
1: And you hit the nail on the head. But I've said it recently. What was interesting? Everyone thought when the George Floyd uh, murder happened that it would be in Minneapolis, and it was going to be Minneapolis. So it was, gonna be, you know, people were going to be sad, and uh, a lot of tweets and texts and posts. But it was going to be Minneapolis, and maybe Detroit. And probably Washington, D.C. But when this started hitting in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, and Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, and various other places like that that you don't expect from North Dakota, that you start looking at it, people started to realize this, this was not a black issue anymore, that this was an America issue, This this was a race relations issue. And that's one of the reasons why I'm confident that our 14 schools who transcend 11 states, we go from Nebraska to New Jersey, all contiguous, uh, really see the opportunity here uh, to come together. We have to, because if we don't, and I'm saying seriously, and you can study history and see it's happened before. This wouldn't be the first time. Uh, there There have been countries, there have been cities, there have been situations that things have gotten off the rail and they never recovered. And, and, and that's where we are right now, no no matter how large and powerful and resourceful we are in the United States of America. And we're not out of the woods yet. If we don't handle our business here uh, over the next month, three months, six months, a year, uh, we will never be uh, the same country. This will set us back literally 100 years. And so I think everyone understands the importance. And we're not... Putting this on you—that like this is all white people's problem uh, or black. No, this is our our issue, our problem, but it's also an an opportunity for us to come together. And I am so confident. I believe in the human race, and I believe in our 14 Big Ten institutions and our student athletes and our coaches. We have 10,000 student athletes in the Big Ten, and uh, and I believe in them. And I and I I, I'm very confident that we'll look back and say this when this happened. That this is when the Big Ten. Uh, really became the Big Ten. We're the Big Ten from an athletic standpoint, and we've done some good things off the field. Don't get me wrong, but I think this is where we'll go to a whole nother level as a people and as a conference.
0: Donald, you know because you've worked at the federal level um, that it's very difficult to get people on the same page, but uh, it's an issue that should transcend race, should transcend uh, you know any kind of e- economic disparity. This is a human rights issue. This is a human issue. How can you see tangible progress across, you know, so many diverse institutions at all levels, uh, division one, two, three, every state in this union uh, in the NCAA?
2: Well, you know, first I have to applaud Kevin and the Big Ten for the step that they're taking, and I'm sure we'll see more steps like that happen at a grassroots level, Throughout the higher education community, other conferences, other universities, the campuses across America are going to engage in this dialogue, even if and when we're in this space of COVID-19 and everybody's distant. I've seen makings of this already, and I'm sure as we all come back together, people are going to engage in a very real way. You mentioned Andy, the NABC efforts, I applaud them for putting together quickly some efforts to try to deal with these very important issues. You know, as I've said a couple of times in our conversation here, it it all starts with communication. Whether you're at the national level, the regional level, the local level, You've got to talk to one another. And and one of the things that I'm particularly proud of, you mentioned Dr. Emmert's statement, and I believe it's a really powerful statement, but I'm really proud of him for addressing these issues with the national office. We we had Andy, we had an all-staff meeting on Thursday morning as the protests were beginning. And again, just yesterday in a forum that for the staff, for all the staff to come together to talk about strength and unity. And so Mark continually emphasizes the importance of the hour and action that can be taken and communication that has to be had. We've started to do that at the national office. We had a really candid conversation about these issues yesterday. And I believe and I've said this to the staff. We can model our behaviors in a way that people can follow. I think that's particularly important for us to do. It's incredible the way that our colleagues have come together and more than colleagues, the way that the NCAA family has come together, not just in the national office, but in the conferences and on the campuses. And if we continue to treat one another and those around us with respect, with basic decency, we'll move the ball. If if we do our best to show compassion, toward others, even, as I said before, even when we may not fully understand their plight and circumstances, I think that moves the ball. I, I, you know, I've said this to a couple of people and I've encouraged anyone, no matter your race, no matter your gender, get to know and understand somebody who doesn't look like you. That's a step in the right direction. Find time to engage in, in our communities as part of the solution, in the end, we can show, we can show collectively that we're collectively and individually better than the racial injustice around us. We, we, we can do that. I believe in us to what Kevin said earlier. You know, as a country, we've got a lot more to do. There's no doubt about this, but I think as this organization, we should double down. No, no, no we should triple down on our commitment to diversity, to inclusion, to equity, and we should hold each other accountable We've gotta make our membership aware of things we're doing, and I hope we have a chance to talk about that today because there's a lot that goes on in our inclusion staff with our leadership development team in the college community that I believe to be very helpful, but we gotta make sure people are aware of those tools. Yes, to Kevin's point, we need new tools, but the old tools need to be sharpened up and they need to be used as they were appropriately designed to get things done. But I'm going to tell you, I think the real key to the question that you've asked on our college campuses is to support our students, the young people, right? Listen to their voices, encourage their engagement. They're the ones we're here to serve. Our student athletes are the community that serve as the backbone of what we do in college sports every single day. And we've got to strive to do better to understand their views, to understand their needs, and to engage in a way that their voice is heard and we execute on new platforms and new programs in a way that we can all see it better tomorrow. And I like Kevin's point, everybody's got to vote.
0: Well, and I would also say, uh, Kevin, uh, that your point, um, I actually, you know, I think it is our issue, our problem, and I hope that we don't have, obviously, a number of these issues coming up. But like, for example, if you're a college student, student athlete, and you are white, and you know of an incident or you witness one, it should not be up to the African American athlete or student to rise up and speak and show the video on their phone. You should be right there, if not doing it in front, or certainly an equal partner in shining the light on any kind of inequality or any kind of you know issue that was obviously not handled appropriately or even legally, I think that is our responsibility going forward. And I just want to wrap up just tangibly, um, and it's hard to do this. I know that because this is a fluid situation. But w- what do you hope you will see, you know, in the coming months on your respective campuses in the Big Ten and then nationally, that at least shows you know some form of progress. Here, at least in the short term, I know th- this is a long term, this is a marathon here to obviously change the culture in this country. But what do you want to see at least tangibly, Kevin?
1: Well, a couple of things. One um, is that we're listening to our young people. That's number one. That's a, that's a good place for us to start. You are even having dialogue between administration and chancellors and presidents and athletic directors and conference commissioners and the NCAA uh, and our coaches and our young student athletes, because they are very bright. They're very bright. They have empathy. They have compassion. But we need to listen to them. That's one. Secondly, is that we need to open up dialogue uh, with our with our various law enforcement agencies. I'm getting ready to start, you know, communicating with our law enforcement agencies, in our various states and cities where our schools are located. Then we need to create opportunities to allow our young people to register to vote. And whether they're in, they go to school in the same state they were raised in, which normally doesn't happen, but you know, I, I look and again. I got this experience myself my son up in Mississippi. What well, we had to go through to 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 try to get him registered to vote. Um, and and, you know, it, it shouldn't be that complicated. If someone wants to, to vote, it, sh- it should be pretty straightforward. So we need to start addressing you know those issues from that standpoint. And then, you know, we, we need to start getting some of these uh, issues on the table like we're talking about to be able to have open and honest dialogue to, to deal with that. And the reason why there's so much kind of pain uh, and anger, especially in our black communities, it's not even about the communications. It's, it's not about totally about the law enforcement. It's not about being registered to vote. It's that when our young folks too look around and, and look and say, okay, Mr. Warren, Mr. Remy, you're telling me to follow these steps. And, and you know, Mr. Warren, you're the first person to be in your position. Mr. Remy, you're the first person to be in your position. You know, what happens if I want to do that? Is it going to be another 125, 126 years before someone? And so I just think from a, a systemic standpoint, we have to take an honest look and start looking behind like these racial diversity report cards. I mean, you know, they're written in a manner, but we got to have an honest look to say, what can we do? This isn't about giving jobs to people of color. This is truly about laying the playing field from just an interview standpoint. And you know, you know my story. I wasn't even on the list here. I was on no list of the search firm. And the only reason why I'm sitting here today is because Eric Kaler, the former president at the University of Minnesota, who I'd worked with during the search of Mark Coyle, brought my name forth at 11th hour and, uh, and gave me an opportunity to interview. But for Eric Kaler, and the grace of God, I would not be sitting here today. And so what we need is more people like Eric Kaler. He didn't call me and say, I guarantee you the job. He couldn't do that. He said, I've pushed forward uh, to give the just to interview you. And it's amazing when you interview people who may not fit into your normal wheelhouse of what happens. And so I just say that I want to challenge everyone that, uh, that, that we got to look outside the box. We got to get people all we're asking for is just level the playing field and, and may the best woman, best man, best person, you know, rise to the top but provide people with an opportunity to show what they can do. And that's really, that's a tangible step that I want us to see as we go forward. Donald.
2: Yeah, Andy, I want to, I want to kind of pick up where Kevin just left off because I, I think that's incredibly important, you know, to, to move the needle in meaningful ways. There's got to be a partnership. You know, we, we've got to work hard together as a community to actually collaborate with one another to get things done. I think about the scorecard, the report card, I should say, that Kevin just referenced. Jeez, seriously? Yeah, here we are at this point in time, and and we're still getting Fs on hiring of head coaches of all of the D1 football teams. That's that's just not acceptable. Yes, we've got a presidential pledge, and I think that that is important. It's a pledge and a commitment to promoting diversity and gender equity in all of intercollegiate athletics. And 80% of our schools have signed on to that pledge, 80% of schools and conferences along the way. You know, those presidents, those athletics directors, those conference commissioners, they've all pledged to establishing initiatives for achieving racial and ethnic diversity, gender equity, inclusion, inclusion focus specifically on the hiring practices to make sure that we have a reflection of the diversity of our membership and of our nation in our community. And it's not acceptable anymore that student athletes can look up and not see somebody who looks like them. So we've got to strive to identify and recruit and interview individuals from diverse backgrounds, in an effort to increase their representation and their retention as commissioners, as ADs, as coaches, as other leaders in the athletics community. We we really have to double down on this effort to make sure that we're doing all that we can to reduce, if not eliminate the inequities that might exist in our system. Because I do believe that part of the protests that you see today, are born of those inequities yes they were sparked by the realities of the tragic awful death of george floyd but there's so much more that can be unpackaged when thinking about what's really going on in america secondly as kevin said and as we've talked about a lot today you got to listen to the student-athletes You really have to hear their voices. They have to engage. They've got to be willing to engage. They got to be comfortable to engage and share with their coaches, their colleagues, their communities, what they're feeling. They've got a significant amount of power. You know, I remember, I think it was Nelson Mandela, who who said sport has the power to change the world. Power to inspire, power to unite people in a way that nothing else does speaks to our youth, youth across the globe in a language that only they can understand. It can create hope where there was once despair. It's, it's more powerful even than governments. Andy, you've noted that I worked in the federal government before. It's, it's more powerful than governments in breaking down racial barriers. And so those participants in sports on our campuses have to be heard they have to be willing to engage they need to use their power to unite not just on their teams but their athletics departments their campuses their communities around the campuses lead by example they have to share their stories with their teammates and their classmates so that everyone feels like they together have ownership of making this change along the way. And, and so tangibly, I think that, We've got to double down, triple down, um, as I said before, on on our diversity and inclusion initiatives. We we have to take the opportunity to develop our young people, to develop our coaches, our administrators so that they're ready for the next level. We have to encourage our student athletes to engage in a dialogue with everyone around them so that their voices can be heard along the way. We have to be willing to listen to one another and perhaps even have our minds changed along the way. Some of us, many of us come to some of these circumstances with already predetermined perspectives. And what's important about listening is that those perspectives can be changed from time to time when you hear information that's coming from someone that has a different vantage point, any less why I'm so happy that you're having this conversation here today. We need more people like you. As I said earlier, more people like you that are dedicated to facilitating these conversations in a way that's constructive, that's productive, that's future looking, that's trying to identify solutions along the way because none of us have all the solutions, but many of us have, have ideas. And with those ideas can come solutions, and with those solutions can come progress, and with that progress can come change,
0: and I'm hopeful for all of that. Well, I'll tell you, Donald uh, and Kevin, um, most importantly, uh, I think the enduring statement out of this is anyone in this world can hear anything, but not everyone can listen. And that's what obviously we all have to take going forward. My hope is when these student athletes and students get back on the college campus, whether it's in August or September, even with social distancing, that their first gathering should be a discussion, an airing, if you will, to listen to each other so that we can all be proactive and not reactive if we're going to try to obviously change the culture on these college campuses and obviously in this country and in this world. I appreciate both of you so much. Uh, you're both uh, incredible leaders and mentors for those that will come behind you. Uh, Donald Remy, the NCAA Chief Operating Officer, and Kevin Warren, the Big Ten Commissioner. As always, you can check out all our social series. Uh, obviously, to this point, most of them have been dealing with COVID-19. Uh, this is an issue that is not certainly going to go away. We're going to keep tackling this uh, in the coming weeks and months and years uh, as we try to deal with systemic racism across this country and across this world. Go to ncaa.com slash social series for more information, excuse me, ncaa.org slash social series for more information on all these topics that we've covered here. I appreciate all of you and all your engagement. I'm Andy Katz. Thanks for watching.